Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Jill Bennett's on the show this week and we talk all about her unorthodox route into the world of digital. We also talk about self-organizing teams, unconscious bias and leading from the middle. Something from her work from Hospital Radio through to BBC and the World Service, where she served as a technical program manager, managing the development of 28 World Service sites and 13 BBC news sites. She credits her success on these projects due to her determination and her need to understand how things work. Once again, asking you listeners that if you are enjoying the show, then please do consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want to go the extra mile, we'd love to build up a profile on Podchaser. So do head on over to podchaser.com and search for that tech show. With all that aside, please enjoy my conversation with Jill Bennett. So my name's Jill Bennett. I have lived in the UK for just over 10 years now and have actually worked in tech for about the same amount of time, pretty much moved over and moved straight, got a job straight in tech out of nowhere. And uh, I am currently working at News UK as an acting program manager, which will be finishing off in the next few weeks because my boss from maternity leave will be coming back. And yeah, that's kind of currently doing project program management uh, work. But I started out in change management in operations. That's where I started. Uh, my tech journey. Nice. Well, why don't we start there? We'll do do a quick whistle stop tour of your weird and wonderful entree into the world of tech, and then we can dig into a, a bit more about self organized teams. And oh my god, I love! Oh, we could totally talk about self organized teams. There we go. Well, good. That's good because half my notes are about self organized teams. We've we've met in the middle there. That's we've great. met in the middle there. So so basically, when I first moved to the UK, my whole goal was to get a job at the BBC. Uh, when I first moved, so 2011, joint rocked up. Three weeks later, had a job at the BBC as a freelancer facilitated for two people who were blind. And so I just did like admin work for them. After six months, you can apply for internal jobs. So I started applying for internal jobs. And I somehow got a job as a change administrator in the operations department of the future media as a department as it was known then. I literally knew nothing about JIRA, had never used it before. And I, when I joined the team, it was six months out from the first ever digital Olympics. So I had no idea about any tech, didn't understand how websites were built, didn't understand how app, like how, didn't understand the platform. And I basically rocked up and had a crash course in the biggest high profile, like event for the BBC uh, ever, probably uh, at that time, uh, having to learn about basically tech and how everything, how all the teams and different departments come together and how like streaming works and and um, how to release because that, that's basically what happened. All the teams would have to come through my team to, to release stuff into production. And it would be literally every website. So BBC Food to sport to news to weather to the smaller like BCBBs and, you know, learning and all that. And I had to, yeah, had to learn it all. <laughs> in a very short space of time and understand Jira. Again, never heard of, never used Jira before. Didn't even know what I was looking at when I showed up for day one. And I actually did ask my boss why I got the job because I was just, <laughs> like, I was just sitting there going, I know nothing. And he basically said to me, oh, well, you proved that you like can manage 
people because I had three bosses in that freelance job I had as the, in the BBC and he was just like he showed you can manage expectations and that's a really big part of the job and it was an entry-level job don't get me wrong but that was kind of where I started then did a so I did that for two and a half years and delivered like relaunching iPlayer and moving news into responsive across a shared code base um, loads of other big, big launches across many different platforms, like even moving Red B off and building our own internal thing, doing release management. And then I did a random stint in internal comms, which we won't talk about because I just wasn't good at that. <laughs> <laughs> it never happened. Nope, never. It just it didn't happen. And then um, I applied for a job in the news elections team. So there's a team that obviously manages when all the elections happen and obviously at that point, there was a lot of elections going on between the referendum and obviously prime ministers walking through the revolving door. So there was always an election going on. So um, I applied for that job as a project manager because in change management, I did a lot of project management uh, skill set, even though I wasn't the project manager, but I worked with project managers so much. So I understood the importance of the delivery in their scrums and, and Kanban and kind of all that sort of stuff. And then I... Um, didn't get that job because I could never give examples of actually doing the things, even though I understood it. And obviously that's how you interview in the BBC. It's all very much competency based. But there was a secondment going on in uh, World Service, BBC World Service. And the person I worked with or dealt with during the change management time, that person, that project manager was going on away for six months and they kind of put me forward for that as a secondment to cover his role. And I was like, great. So I went into world service, knew nothing about languages, knew nothing <laughs> about, <laughs> I understood their code base because again, I'd worked in change management and I managed all of the BBC new releases and the BBC app releases. Um, but I knew nothing about world service and the complexities of language sites. And then after doing that for six months, by the end of it, the foreign office approved funding for uh, BBC World Service to launch 13 new language sites. And I was already managing 26 language sites at the time. And so all of a sudden I was made permanent and I basically then went and launched 13 new language sites around the world. Wow. Um, and that was probably the biggest project, you know, as a project manager, that was my first big project really that I was managing. And again, no experience. Like I was running like my first, after my first like, Retro, I walked out and I said to the team, I was like, was that okay? Because <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was going to other project managers going, can you show me retros that I can run? Because, or, or if I did it this way, would that work? So I think pulling out delivery plans for these massive 13 new language sites I had to launch around the world, doing, you know, and coordinating editorial training and working with other project managers who were building out the buildings and making sure the software's available and, you know, understanding that end to end journey, which, for the most part, I did, thankfully, because I'd had that initial change management experience. But again, kind of like then thinking about delivery. And then obviously, that was my first proper scrum team. And I was then like figuring out how to build a high performing self-organizing team. And so once that was all delivered successfully, thankfully, I was put into the apps team. So then all of a sudden, I was managing 46 language sites with seven BBC apps across Android, iOS, you know, in languages and BBC.com and UK. Uh, and then by the end of that time, I'd kind of peaked, didn't know where to go. There wasn't really a lot of opportunities. Like, don't get me wrong, everyone wanted me to take on the next big project because obviously the one I'd just done was so successful. <laughs> Word got around. Um, there were secondments going. People were like, oh, we'd love Jill to come and do this. So that was like great. 
but yeah, you know, I'm always looking for that next challenge. So then I, uh, an opportunity appeared at the Times uh, and Sunday Times, someone who I knew who, used to, who was working there now as program manager. Uh, so they gave me an opportunity, went and interviewed. Then I did a year in the Times Sunday Times and working on subscriptions and all that. And then we had a bit of a tech reset and I'm now in platform department, which I didn't have as much experience, whereas I'd done a lot of websites and apps, front end experience. And now what we're working on is a multi-brand design system. So instead of being in the silos, as I'm sure you're aware, people love to be in silos and build their own thing three times when we're trying to build one thing that any brand in News UK from the Sun to the Times to wireless can just come in and use our design system and quickly build out their own websites just and all they have to do is put their theming pick the components they want and also I, I get great exposure because we have like three pillars so we have our design system uh, which includes like API and render and components and then we have experimentation so we're trying to drive experimentation first so instead of doing that waterfall approach big bang yeah everyone will love it and then turning around and finding out that actually how it's designed isn't quite working uh, we kind of like move things around test it if it's successful we move it back, that sort of thing. And then the other thing we do is tech SEO. So again, I've had amazing exposure to tech SEO, which I haven't really had before. So that's been really interesting to, to learn uh, how SEO kind of plays a, a role in, in everything we do. And that's pretty much it all kind of who I knew kind of just Word of mouth. Um, I'm now acting program managers because uh, my boss went on maternity leave. We did bring someone in and then they left. And then my counterpart also resigned. So I was on my own for like two months <laughs> having to learn program management. And um, I've been kind of doing that uh, ever since. So kind of just got thrown in. So a lot of it's been like, just thrown in, figure it out. <laughs> Off I go. <laughs> Sink or swim. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do I start? I know. <laughs> do you see why it's so hard when people say, oh, what do you like? How did you get to where you are? I'm like, this is so much. The first thing that came into my mind is like, you, you've obviously, I'm going to cut right to the chase. Were you a nerd before <laughs> you moved to London? Were you into tech and nerdy or were you into sports or something? Like, Oh, I was really into sports. I'm a bit of a self-learner. It doesn't matter what it is. I love everything. So at school, I did sport. Like my whole career path when I was a teenager was to be a phys ed teacher. As we can see, I totally went and did that. And I went to university for, for a year, studied sport, like that teaching for a year and went, oh, that's not what I want to do. And then I kind of ended up, I started like three degrees and didn't finish any of them. I did like like multimedia, which was really interesting in animation, but my brain just couldn't wrap my head around animation. And then I went and off and studied jazz piano for a year. <laughs> As you do, the global financial crisis hit, and then I just quit uni. And I, well, I can't afford to do this let's anymore. Play some and jazz. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do something else. Um, but I have always been interested in tech. Um, I've always like I remember when the I I went to university and my first after my first semester I knew I needed a computer and I insisted to my mum I needed a Mac <laughs> because it just was like that's the thing I need. I want to play with the Mac. I want to see it. It's so, it looks so cool. And like the way I sold it to her to that I had to spend the extra money for the Mac was that there were no viruses <laughs> to attack a Everyone Mac. did. That was, that's probably my, one <laughs> yeah. of my reasons too. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I told her and convinced her that that's why I had to buy a MacBook. And then I remember when the iPhone three came out and I didn't get it because I was like, oh, everyone, that's such an advanced technology in my head. I went, 
we need to get through that one first to figure out all the things that are wrong with it, which I think very quickly Apple realized that they didn't realize how many people dropped their phone. <laughs> for sure. For their phone breaks. But when the iPhone 4 came out, I was in that shop every day. I be- actually became like great mates with the guy there who I still talk to today because I was in there every day going, is there, is there a phone available yet? Can I get a phone available yet? <laughs> and he, he actually eventually could kept one aside for me and I was like, yes, I've got a phone. So I've always been like, I love learning. I love seeing all that sort of stuff and like kind of, but it could be anything. Like even when I worked on World Service, like I, every time we were like launching a new site or migrating a website from like old stack to responsive or whatever, uh, I would sit on a whiteboard and write up facts about that country and about that language because I just thought it was really, really interesting and really like fascinating. So domain knowledge, right? Yeah. And I love, uh, I love understanding how things work. So I kind of am a bit of an all-rounder to answer your question <laughs> is I'll, I'll learn just about anything and kind of do anything. I'm like a highly creative person, but love understanding tech and, and understanding how all that works. So Yeah. You mentioned you're enthusiastic, you know, about all this stuff, but particularly early on in your career, were, were you quite fearful or, or, I don't know, maybe explain that a little bit? I'm, I'm quite determined uh, particularly because also like I, how I learn is very different. And also uh, there's particularly probably when I was a lot younger, cause I didn't have a degree. And obviously, particularly at the BBC, there's probably not so much there now, but when I first joined, it was still very much like, oh, you need a degree. Like I even had people tell me I couldn't, other jobs I was applying for, they were like, oh, well, you, you don't have a degree. Like you need to be, have gone to Cambridge or Oxford and all that sort of stuff. And I'm quite determined to prove that you don't need that certificate or that piece of paper that to to be good at what you do. Like, so it's more determination than anything else to prove, not just to others, but to myself that like I can I can do anything. I also have three younger brothers, so of course there's a, you know, and some of them are really smart and academically, and obviously growing up with that was like, no, I'm going to prove that I could do this. I don't need to <laughs> to do that. So. And and yeah, there's it's always it's always I always find it funny, particularly when I start a new job. Like the first three months you accept is just you don't know anything. And then by six months you think you know everything. And then another six months pass and you go, Yeah, I really didn't know anything. So it's six months. <laughs> it's totally true. <laughs> yeah. So um I always find that really funny now when I go through jobs as I really recognize like I think I know nothing, I think I know stuff, and then actually I really still don't know anything <laughs> what's going on. So yeah, I, I very much it's more a determination than anything else to kind of prove that I can I can do it. Yeah. It's a great spirit to have. I mean, we had uh, we had an episode talking with Simon Holden, who we we really tried to, you know, emphasize that he came from an army background, you know, if listeners want to go check that one out. And just to demonstrate that determination is obviously one aspect that you you've you've found works for you and and it's also a testament to technology and how open and welcoming it can be for us you know to try new things and to experiment and to you know you mentioned getting pulled into that that language um migrating like th- well 13 more languages or something like that like, yeah but i'd like to actually get into that one as well because was that kind of the first time you really experienced some deep technical you know just seeing something so big did you experience a lot of the different aspects of digital there i would say there's so i say there's something different that because the big technical one for me probably was the the digital olympics which is introducing that bbc live streaming online all the stuff um and actually change management i would say for me as a project manager is what makes me probably a bit more unique because i come from the operations background originally 
So I always, I really understand the, the, the handover and understanding the importance of how end-to-end it works. Like I even remember in change management, everyone was caring about how the page looked and that, you know, BBC Sport had their releases, whereas I quickly realised that the page could look as nice as it wants, but if that stream doesn't work, <laughs> then there's no point to that page. And so I know by the time I then got to to world service and was then doing languages, the interesting thing there was around just the political keeping that unbiased, but the political different country had different political things that you would be debating about and or what you'd have to put on the page and and how you you get your content out there very differently. So because by the time I got to World Service, because I had that strong understanding of that whole end-to-end journey and that connection, I think that meant that I had that wider view and also just had those little nuggets in my head where I'd turn around a few weeks before launch and go, have we talk, gone through that final checklist of things we've learned from the last launch that we didn't do, we need to do now? And they'd go, oh, it's fine. And then they'd go off and look at the list and they go, oh, yeah, there's still 10 things we have to do. And I went, see, this is why we're talking about it now and not in three weeks' time just before we launch. But World Service was definitely more like we spent like three months talking about the BBC Telugu and their font. Like font is so important in language because it wasn't round enough and it took us three months to finally understand what they really meant by it not being round or too round because for them their language has to be a set a set way. And even like uh, Serbian, which got added on, you know, we put on a script. So like our Chinese, the Chinese websites on the BBC, like you can switch between traditional and, and modern Chinese. And Serbian, we did the same where we went from like uh, Latin and Cyrillic, but there was a whole discussion for weeks around when you first hit that page, what is the one you land on first? Because people can then, once it's set, it's cached and it's that's what they'll always go back to. But again, because it's such a political thing of what it lands on. And then there's the Korean service. And man, that just introduced like, what do you call the Korean side? Yeah. <laughs> to keep that as safe and sound. And um, we even launched a Punjabi. So there's an Indian Punjabi website but also Punjabi spoken in Pakistan. And there's more uh, Punjabi speakers in Pakistan, but they only speak it, they don't read it. So we have Urdu as a website, but we put in a tab with video speaking Punjabi, but it has Urdu subtitles, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's like all that sort of stuff that we were talking about kind of trying to, and then you get into like the African websites and how do you get your content out there? So I got to go to... Uh, Kenya, where we actually had some developers working for us as part of the, the delivery of all those language sites and going there and meeting with the companies that we're talking to at the BBC with the BBC to try try and get our content on there so people can download it and use it and and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, it was all just it that's what I found most fascinating about the world service was just every day was a different conversation, different problem, but it wasn't like your technical problem. It would be a technical problem, but it would be derived from somewhere, something else entirely to solve that problem. And it just, it made it very, very interesting. Yeah, I think I think definitely in tech, certainly from my perspective, there's so many solutions that people want to solve with tech and abstracting that and saying, maybe it's a UX problem, maybe it's a conversation, maybe it's something like that. And often trying to pull people back from just going highly technical, oh, we could, we could solve it with this kind of, like algorithm or whatever it is you know it's like whoa mate whoa the other thing that introduced as well with that made news very interesting and unique is that it was a shared code base so you had domestic bbc.com and all 46 language sites 
in one code base. So when you wanted to do a release, you had to test, you had to coordinate yourself together, had to release at the same time. You had to. So again, if we had hard dates, even if the elections had hard dates, we'd all project managers have to get together and go, well, this is when we'll need these releases by. What do you got on your project plan that's going to impact those that you have your own dates for? You know, do we need to block out where we don't do any releases so we're safe for certain things? And it was just all that sort of stuff that then also added in the complexities of getting getting all of that lined up and out the door. So, I mean, that sounds like a project that's ripe for picking. The fact that you have to coordinate all those people for one release, even if it's just the UK or whatever, is are they still doing that? Like, that sounds very expensive too. So so that was like the old, because it's all responses. That was the old way. When I left, we were starting to move more into cloud own releases sort of stuff. I don't know how it is now. So I obviously haven't been there for like three years, three or four years now. But um, but when I left, it was definitely, they were decommissioning that that old world and moving into the cloud, the cloud world. But um, to try and keep, again, all the websites relatively the same, that's why they all went into that shared code base as a responsive I'm sure probably when they did that, I went, yeah, that's a great idea. I think they just hadn't realized that when you then want to deliver something. Because again, if you got to test or staging, you would have to test. At the very early days, they'd test for three or four days across everything because they didn't have all the tests set up. Um, when I when I joined News, I, because obviously I dealt with their actual releases from the other end when they moved into that world. So I already knew all their pain points. So when I joined, I went, right, we're going to get to more frequent releases and I got them to be releasing every few days. But it did mean still a lot of coordinating and a calendar and, you know, we rotate which project manager was like the release manager and, you know, make sure everyone's got their code in for what they need out. Obviously, we'd give the highlights, raise the tickets, make sure all the testers, including bbc.com, were aligned and make sure they were ready. You'd have to wait for them all to sign off, you know, and then you could share the tickets in and, and have that done. And wrong, over time, it got a lot easier because, again, we weren't needing to release as much because, obviously, we were releasing so frequently with little bits sort of things. So it meant that the releases weren't as big, which meant that everything went a lot smoother because, uh, yeah, when they first started, it was they would be like 50 changes, 50 to 70 changes. So, obviously, that would just be a huge risk, like release with risk. And coming from me, coming from that change management side, I'm like, oh, my God, that's just so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. And I like brought all the project managers together and went, like, let's let's plan this out. How can we get everyone agreed to to align? How can we make sure that we're releasing properly? Uh, how do we get people on board with this new approach? And yeah, I can't. I definitely drove that because I just wasn't having that. <laughs> just like not dealing with this. We're we're going to sort this out. We're going to make life easier. Yeah. So in amongst all this, at what point did you start to feel comfortable in your shoes, kind of orchestrating something and, and demanding something like that? Was it, are we talking months? Are we talking years? Are we talking, I'm still trying to figure stuff out now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm always starting to try and figure stuff out. I very much, it's, as people say, you fake it till you make it. Um, and definitely I, uh, I, I can do that if I really need to. I would say, um, by the time we launched the first, like two or three first website, because by that point we kind of knew what we were doing. I think also by that point as well, I'd found my stride in like build like with the team and working with the team and really understanding very early on that I'm I'm a bit of you you are a leader. So even though you're not line managing, you you are leading a team. Like I know when I first joined as a project manager, I jumped obviously 
in the grades quite high because I still was a very entry level. So obviously I never really understood that whole leading thing because I never was in that position. And when I joined this team, obviously particularly being a woman, there were there was a female apprentice who joined us and she very much quickly attached on to me because obviously there's not a lot of females uh, in tech depending on where you work. And I suddenly was like, oh, I've got someone who's looking up to me and expecting, you know, like I was like, oh, I really need to change how I be aware of what I'm saying and what I'm doing because clearly whatever I say, they're believing and if I want to go in the right way and if I want to make sure that they're growing and because I do care about all of that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it took a good six to eight months as a project manager before I was like, all right, I've got this. I know what I'm doing now. And kind of, and by the end of it, definitely, like they asked me to go on to apps which obviously like really confirmed they were always happy with the fact that we were like we were releasing our websites the new websites like a week before they officially launched and they would just sit there so by the time the announcement went out they'd already been sitting there quietly for a week so everyone was like oh yeah great it's all out and we were like oh yeah we've moved on <laughs> we celebrated last week it's on these so so yeah we we did a lot of um so yeah it probably took about yeah six to eight months before I felt like I actually knew what I was doing and saying all the right things <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, with, with introductions aside then, that sounds like an incredible, incredible sort of journey to where you are now. But I mean, I'm, I'm super curious to talk about self-organizing teams. I, I obviously have elements of that. I think Agile and Scrum teach elements of being a self-organized team. But for our listeners, why don't you give us a rundown on what is a, a self-organizing team? Well, I'll be interested to see if Mark, what I think is the same as, as what you you think. Okay. So to me, a self-organizing team is that I am not the scrum master. Anyone can be the scrum master. Uh, like I learned very early on when I was learning about scrum that anyone can be the scrum master. And actually, I felt it was the right thing, approach to do because it takes the pressure off you and focus, you can focus more on delivery, but also it gives your team the responsibility and the accountability of how they want to work. And it gives them that empowerment and that freedom, particularly because uh, for developers, like they don't get a choice in what they're going to build. Like if someone pivots and turns around and goes, you've got to do this now. Yesterday, I know I said this, but today we're doing this. Um, whereas if they have that control of how they work, um, you get a much more confident and also a less inclined like disruption from the team uh, in how they uh, in just being unhappy with things being dropped on them because they they still have that control that they kind of want. So to me, anyone can be the scrum master. And to me, a self-organizing team and a high performing self-organizing organizing team is that they can they rotate who runs stand-ups, retros, tech analysis. That's, you know, all of those scrum ceremonies. And yes, I still go. I then take the step back and I become more the scrum coach because, you, you know, scrum is is a framework, but I see it as more as it's a toolbox and you take what you need for what the team wants and then you just ensure that they stay within that, the confines of that. But you you adapt to to different ways of working to what works best and also what works best for the project. Like one of the teams, um, most recent teams I've built out has design embedded in the team, which I've never been able to successfully do until now. Um, and I'm sure, as you know, getting designed to work in an agile framework is is very hard, particularly with how the business probably works. But we have design embedded in the day-to-day team using JIRA, collaborating directly, going to all the ceremonies, even running the ceremonies and the like retros and that. So 
it then frees you, you giving them that control and that power. Uh, and also it then builds out their own confidence, particularly juniors, like at the BBC, for whatever reason, I would always end up with the juniors and the graduates and the apprentices. I don't know why. I think because it was world service and they're like, because it's world service, they'll learn all about languages and then they can take that to whichever team they're then going to. And with the apprentices, particularly at the end of their year, they'd have to interview to stay on as a casual while they went back to university. And my people always got hired because not only could they show that they understood technically and could write and do all that, but they were able to sit there and say, I've had difficult conversations, you know, in tech analysis. I've ran these sessions. I've been able to coordinate retros where we've had difficult discussions and kind of facilitate those sorts of things. And because they were able to show that, it was just a bit of a no-brainer. And the thing I always say to the devs as well, having that safe environment to learn how to have the people skills, you know, particularly with some devs who just don't have the people skills, um, when they then grow in their career, when they get to principal or head of engineering and all that, like, that's when they do have to have more the people skills because you're having those more difficult conversations around high level architectures and, you know, everyone has their own opinion. And I'm like, if you can learn in a safe space how to use those skills and build those skills, by the time you then grow up into those roles, you've already established very firmly on like the type of style you have, but also you know how to work with people. Whereas obviously if you have someone who's running all of that for you, Yes, there is still room that you can offer to grow, but I just think giving them the self-organizing teams really gives them that learning to then be able to take on elsewhere in other jobs. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's sort of like if you've always got a, a, a shoulder to lean on or whatever, then th those people will utilize that. Or, that you know, no fault of their own. They're probably not trying to be lazy or whatever but they're, they're like oh so and so will take care of that it, it almost feels like you can be too helpful yeah for your team to actually grow and become self-organized right yeah and i also find particularly because you get um different scales as i'm sure you've seen with developers like some are really like i know what i'm talking about and this is how it should be and you need to bring them back but i've worked with loads of people who just who who don't have the confidence like I used to have developers, like junior devs come to me and be like, oh, this is a problem. I'm like, okay, so that's the problem. They go, can you go and talk to this person for me? And I'd be like, nope, <laughs> you could go. To because I know that they just were too afraid and uncomfortable to to do that conversation. And I'm like, no, you need to have that conversation because you, you've got to be able to go off and solve your own problems. And if you can't solve the problem, then yes, I will step in and help and, you know, coordinate uh, things and which I very quickly learned that uh, if people didn't respond to other people's emails as soon as they saw my name CC they <laughs> quickly respond but like they that's kind of again why another reason to do it is because you you know you've got different personalities and different traits that you you have to work with and if you want them to be the best that they can be and and grow and and be able to to cope in the work life particularly with with this generation with how everything's online and, you know, those social skills probably just aren't as there as much. You know, I think with the pandemic, that's kind of probably meant that we all now have to come out and relearn how to socialize. <laughs> and I think just giving them that safe space in retros and being that person who's on, on hand to like, if they have concerns or not comfortable, like you're there to kind of encourage and support. Um, because again, that's what's part of being a scrum master is to help your developers grow even though you don't line manage you that is part of like the scrum remit is that you you were there to to develop developers obviously the only problem you've got is when they aren't doing what you need you have to go and talk to the line manager and obviously depending on what their line manager like depends on whether or not it gets resolved or not 
and I've had it both ways. Yeah, for sure. I would have thought, right, and I, you know, I've already experienced it with the with the remote working. I'd have thought self-organizing teams would become aspects of self-organized teams would become easier because you don't have to get off get off your ass and go talk to someone. You can just slack them and it's perfectly okay. But I'm still having to encourage, you know, devs and designers and things like that. Just what, why are you sending things to me to then send to someone else? Like, go speak to that person, tell them, you know, and all this sort of stuff. I'm, do you, I'm okay if people come to me and say, oh, this is a problem. And I, I'll say, oh, you need to talk to this person. Because sometimes I think, well, maybe they don't know who to go to, which is perfectly fine, which is why I then say this is the person to talk to. But yeah, still, I don't have it as much anymore, but I do every now and then you still have someone who will just go, oh, can you do this? And you're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why, why can't you, you know, and then you have to sit down and understand them and understand them as a human being and why, like what's stopping them from talking. I do know for um, us as well, like we have developers who are based overseas. So even at the BBC, I had like someone, two people in Kenya and obviously London and, and even at News UK, we have people like in Sofia and Bulgaria, like so, but Bulgaria and Bangalore and all that. And so even that's been interesting because we found before the pandemic, like if we were all in a room and they were calling in, actually, it was really difficult to have conversations. But since coming to being all at home and all on the same living, like playing field, it's been really easy. Like really, like they've all just gone, oh, this is easier now. We can all kind of do what we need to do because we, we're all at home and not having private conversations like whispering over here while someone's trying to talk over here and so I have found I think for us at least currently as much as there's many disadvantages to being at home I I have found I think for our teams it's actually run a lot better because we're all on the same level playing field of of how we connect and communicate yeah no it does make sense and have you studied or are interested in like the Myers-Briggs test or HBDI or anything like that? Around? Oh yeah, I've done all of that. You've done all of those. How do you think they work for you? Or um, they do for me. I I do for me because particularly when I was a lot younger and being Australian, uh, we as a culture Australians were a lot more direct and to the point, and we don't beat around the bush. And obviously, when I moved over here. Like for me, I would message someone and say, hey, da 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 like this thing. Whereas obviously when people message me, they're like, hi, how are you? How's your weekend been? And I'm like, no, 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 don't time for the formalities. Like let's just have that conversation. And I've even worked with some people who, like I worked with someone who we'd go into a meeting room and we'd spend 50 minutes of them trying to understand why they were having this meeting. And then when I went off and did like this influencing skills course and we did like this whole, we filled out a questionnaire and we learned like where we were when we're not stressed and where we are when we are stressed and all that. I came back to her and I was like, I totally get you as a person (laughs) because I was able to kind of go, oh, that's their type of thinking. And even now it's been really useful to have some of that stuff because I now line manage. And obviously that's a new thing at the start of the year that I had to take on going into the program role, which I've, again, never done it before. And I've obviously been learning how to line manage and how, because it's very different to coaching and mentoring, which obviously I do a lot of coaching and mentoring anyway, but line management's a very different game. And even that's been just using those sorts of tools and understanding how people work has been really useful and not only knowing how to have the conversation with them, but equally, if they don't do something that I want or can't understand why they're asking a million questions, whatever else, I can kind of sit there and take that step back and go, well, actually, 
they're clearly this, they're probably this type of person, which is why they need all that detail and I need to find a way to work with it. And actually just understand that means that I don't get as frustrated and I don't get as upset and I'm just don't write them off as like, oh, well, they're useless at their job because no one's useless at their job. It's just we all work very differently and we all take in information very differently. You know, I'm the same, again, like not having really ever studied properly for anything like makes me very different to a lot of other people like I've learned literally everything on the job as I've done it so I find doing those like the human element stuff very uh, for me at least very important because I feel if I understand how people work and why they possibly work that way I can then work with them to get the best out of them and give them the environment that works for them but equally help them kind of adjust to the environment that they need to adjust to because they don't quite don't might not adjust immediately straight away to how how it's meant to be yeah i mean rolling that back to your your self-organizing teams then you know essentially the the people on your teams surely they would also need to understand this to be self-organized like they've not only got to organize themselves but they've also got to help others and, and to engage with others yeah like make them they're accountable for each other yeah, so it depends on the team. So each team I've ever had have had different problems or they've built themselves up in a way to be high performing, but they've, the journey has always been different. Um, when I first joined, uh, there's there's a team I've had once where I'd have devs come to me and they'd whisper in my ear whinging about someone over here. And I'd be like, and I wouldn't understand why they had this problem with this person. But I also noticed that the team itself was just really fractured. There was just like them and us in the, the developers world and I couldn't understand it. So what I did was I did like Lego retros and I did uh, like drawing, like basically team building exercises, but I designed them in a way where they could learn how those other people worked. I even did like a team charter once and was like, okay, how do we want to, what do you expect as a team that you guys are going to like these are the, your rules that these are this is what your manifesto is for your team and i remember actually after once we did that one of the guy that this person was having a problem with he would turn around and said oh can we have something in there around having giving time to to feed back properly and and to pair more and all that sort of stuff because and he literally said he said i put stuff forward and then it comes back like a week later and there's all these things wrong with it and i don't really understand what i've done and then after that, this guy stopped coming and whinging to me because he, he suddenly realized by doing like by me just doing like what I call ninja skills, because that's what I think we do is we have ninja skills where you've got to like, it's like giving someone the idea, making them think they had the idea when really you have the idea, but you need them on board. So you make them think they have the idea. Otherwise known as manipulation. But yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, ninja skills just sounds more cool. It does. And it sounds less threatening too. Yes. Know. Well, no, ninjas are pretty threatening. So it sounds slightly less sinister. Yes. Um, so, you know, and it was because, again, I, you know, I just created an environment in the retro. Like that's what makes retros, in my view, so important when building self-organizing teams, because it should be the safe space where you can all be open and honest about what's going on. And sometimes they can't do that because they're just not comfortable or they're afraid. So you have to then create the environment for them to be able to open up enough to to get that information out so everyone actually verbalizes, like hears it, and then they're able to take that off. And it's it always works. You've just got to find the right thing thing that works, like uh, with that team sort of thing. Because otherwise, because sometimes even like I've had teams that just won't do 
retros. Like they won't run them. Like I just know that this team will not run the retro as much as I want them to. But what I've done is I've then, you know, set it up in a way where I'm like, well, if we do add, like if something's happened, if we do a retro right then and there at our desks, we actually got to a point where we didn't need retros anymore because we were doing it as we went along because they were, I got them to communicate with each other. We didn't, instead of waiting two weeks, we were just sorting out. So all of a sudden they've become a high performing team still, but the journey that they took was very different to, to others. So for me, it's very much about finding what works for your team and understanding what's going to what will benefit them to get out what you need to to help them get to that point. Mm. And so are you, are you suggesting then that every Scrum Master going into a team should be looking from, from the get-go, should be looking and understanding the team in order to pull away at some point and, and leave them with the tools that they need to, um, to sort their own stuff out? Yeah. Then you just need to oversee and make sure. And also you've got to remember that as soon – I remember my – old product owner, one of my old product owners said this to me and I was like, wow, that's really true. He's like, whenever a new person joins, it's a brand new team. So you have to reset when a new person joins because it's a different dynamic, different personality, but you've got to, you you might have everything in place and it's still running fine and you say to him, okay, this is how the team works and this is the expectations we have, but you still need to assess how they're going to fit in with all of those people and those personalities. How do they work? Are they really slow? With their development, um, I had a developer once who would get so distracted that whenever anything broke, he was on it. Even if it had nothing to do with my team, he was on it. And no matter how much I talked to that his boss and was like, will you stop him from doing that? So in my capacity planning, I would just deduct him every week. I went from like saying he was available for nine days to like four every time because it was the only only way I could manage wow. <laughs> my delivery because it was the only way I could manage that that capacity. And I would tell him, I'd make it very clear to him that that's what I was doing because I couldn't control how he worked. But, you know, it, it, again, I would then make it very clear to the whole team that that's what I was doing and how unhappy I was about it and how that's not what's expected. And around, he would just laugh it off and think it was the funniest thing in the world. But I'd just be like, well, and I would say to everyone else, he may find it funny, I don't because of X, Y, Z. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a mother coming down. You think this is funny? I don't. My my team, every team I've ever had, at one point or another, they'll say, you're like the mum and the dad, Jill, because you're very caring and loving and, you know, you really support us and you always listen and, you you know, you take our concerns on board and you always try and help us make sure we, you know, we have everything. And they said, but when we do something wrong, boy, do you let me know about it? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> but I know, like, as I say to them, I'm like, well, A, most of my developers are men. You know, some of them are a lot older than me because they've been around for a very long time and are set in their ways. And I'm a female. Like I've got to, I'm going to go in and basically I have to assert myself and basically be like, this is how it is. Like you will listen to what I am telling you to ensure we do these things. And But, you know, I still work with them and understand them and understand their needs and wants and and all that sort of stuff because it just does, it plays a huge role in ensuring you deliver you know, as well as people not leaving, you know, and that turnover of people. Like I know when I left the BBC, my whole, my, my, <laughs> one of my devs, I think he was the uh, apprentice. He went out and bought everyone ice cream. It was like, I was breaking up with him. <laughs> <laughs> we all said, he was so upset that I would like, they were all just so upset because I had built a really safe space for them. But I was just like, but that's how it is as well. Like things change, you know, you can't always have the perfect team. You might have the perfect team for a while, but you need to still be able to 
adapt to to new things as well. And that's again part of you know encouraging them to try new things and and get comfortable with like things just dropping on them out of nowhere to be able to cope with that because that's just how a business works at the end of the day. Like you can't control when the business decides to change their mind and go in another direction. Yep. You definitely can't do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you, you touched on something quite interesting there around when new members join and you have to kind of reset. And fundamentally, I sort of agree with that. But in, in practicality, I, I would find it, take, for example, the team that you would do retros as and when things came in. Are you suggesting that when a new member joins that it's like, okay, we're going back to normal retros now? Um, I wouldn't do it straight away. Again, like with anything, I think it's always important. And this is what I always do, even when I join a new team, is I will let things kind of run for a month or two to really see how things are working. And also for anyone new, letting see how they like settle into that job. Because again, you got to think they're trying to understand code base. They're trying to understand how the business works. They're trying to understand what the hell we're building. But I always, again, I even look at who's paired with them because there's always a new, any new developer, they always get paired with someone. So if I know who's paired with them, I, I then can assess very quickly, well, they're with a really good person who I know will set the right standards and expectations. If it's with someone who's a bit more, you know, will go a bit more rogue because he sees something broken and goes, oh, I'm going to go fix that. Then you kind of know that you, you might, I might have to step in a bit more and kind of make sure that I'm in their ear, making sure they understand stuff. But I, I tend to like just let it settle for a month or so. And then if things do, you know, if I'm then hearing a lot of stuff, then yeah, I will definitely go, okay, we're going back to retros because we need to do that. Or I might say, you know what, we haven't done one in a while. I'm going to just throw one in. And then you kind of assess maybe after that retrospective how 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 much information has come out of that. If, if you've got a full board, then you're like, yeah, we need to go back to fortnightly retros and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, so I, I, it really does depend on the situation and the team and and that person and how they're settling. Because um, sometimes as well, it could be that person's settled and you can tell very quickly that they're just really lazy and they're just going to go do their own thing. And then you know it's not so much a team problem, it's an individual problem, which then impacts the team because obviously they're not pulling their weight. But even that, But then you know that that's the situation, so then you will work with their manager to kind of figure out or understand what's going on because obviously he has one-to-ones with them all the time whereas I I don't um like I know scrum masters who will meet with each dev one-on-one every every month they'll meet do like a week where they'll just meet in one-on-one to talk to them to understand what's going on how they're feeling I don't do that but I do try more of a just check in with them every week or you know just have chats with them build that relationship you know sometimes I'll just talk to them and we'll just talk like about nothing related to work but again, I've then built that rapport and that trust, you know, and made them comfortable so that if there is a problem or if I want to understand what's going on, because again, you could watch a retro or a tech analysis and you'll be like, that's not running quite right. And then you can go and ask them, oh, I saw this. What's going on? Like, what are your thoughts? You know, get their opinions because then you can go back to the team and say, oh, so I've spoken to a few of you about this. You know, what do you think? What do you think about doing this? And again, that's when you do the like the more agile coach or scrum coach of suggesting things without enforcing changes sort of thing so yeah it's very very different each time depending on the team 
Yeah. So how how has this all manifested it, itself in terms of so you've got this passion for self-organized teams? Is it sort of is this more like a mantra that you have with how you go about your work and that, that you aim to try and do? Or is this something you're actively speaking about or or um so there's there's two things to it. Uh, on one hand, it's because I'm lazy and I don't like doing scrum, <laughs> which I shouldn't say, but it's definitely like the first the initial reason for doing it partly was because I went, I, I personally got bored because I'm someone who wants to be constantly challenged in new things. And I was like, you know what, if I can get a team to take care of this myself, that's a challenge. Like, But also I do have a natural drive for people. Like I'm a real people, like wanting to get the best out of people. I really want to um, talk to people and kind of just help. I'm a, I love helping people. Like that's really like, I get in trouble for helping too much sometimes because I obviously have work I need to do. But whenever people come to me and say, oh, I need help with this. I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. Like, and I'll help them because that's just how, how I am. And I kind of, particularly early on at the BBC, I came, I was talking to someone one day and I came, I kind of like sprouted this random saying that I've since stuck to, which is that, because um, they were like, well, why, why are you trying to do this? Why are you trying to get people over to doing the sign and why can't you just make them do it why are you doing all this work to help them join you and I my response randomly was I said well if you want people to join you on the other side of the river you have to build them that bridge to help them cross you can't just expect them to jump in and swim and he's like well why don't you just teach them to swim and I said well there's problems in that and then I got, got we got into this whole debate about that and <laughs> I came up with <laughs> so yeah so I kind of like that's where I started and then on top of that as well like I know for me, I have felt very misunderstood a lot of my, my, just my life in general, like, you know, people kind of assuming that I should be one way or that I should be doing this and, or I can't do something because again, I haven't gone and studied it or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and I, particularly when I became a project manager, I kind of like started getting into the whole leadership thing and understanding what that meant. Cause I was like, oh, I'm, I feel I'm a bit of a leader now because I'm leading this team. You know, and then I was like driving change across the department and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of leading these people. But I was like, but I have no authority to lead these people. Like I'm, but I'm clearly influencing my way through to, to make these changes. And so that's kind of where I started writing about uh, since we went into lockdown last year, I was finally able to sit down and, and write it about it was uh, what I call is my like leading from the middle series that I'm now expanding quite a lot on as I keep thinking more and more about it. And it is very much about the human element and about how our foundations, like how we grew up, our experiences, you know, our mental health, um, you know, people's cultures all kind of play a role in how we work and, and how that impacts us, you know, and how we respond to things and deal with things. And and I particularly noticed it more initially with myself because, again, I felt very misunderstood and people would say, oh, you're really brash and you're really like this. And, and you know, but then when I think about it, I was like, well, I remember growing up and I was, I had three younger brothers, <laughs> you know, I was like, I had to be loud. <laughs> I had to be, I had to stand my ground. I had to fight the fight. I had to, you know, and I have a real thing about fighting for the little guy as well. Like I don't, if I see higher up doing something and I'm just like, that's just not fair. Like I will stand my ground and I will fight for the people who, struggle to have that voice and I and when I started like googling around leadership and trying to like understand what I was thinking about all that sort of stuff like again every time they talk about leadership it's always about the more external skills that you have you know that all the external traits that people kind of think about and I just 
I was like, yeah, but there's something before that, which is that human element. No one's talking about the human element. And also they talk about leadership as if you were already in a senior leadership CTO position. And I just was like, but I'm I'm leading now. <laughs> I've got people following me. I, that, does that not define me as a leader? And also leading, like, again, I was sitting there going, I'm, I have a team that I'm leading, but I'm then influencing people at my level. But also, as you probably know, you have people high up that you then have to manage them because they have their own demands and you're there having to influence and drive all that change. And, you know, then you've got diagonally and it's all this sort of stuff. And I was just like, actually, I spent a lot of my time trying to manage all of that. And a lot of it is facing the idea that I am doing that, basing it all off a lot of what the human is and understanding if they're really just a direct person. Are they really analytical? Do I need to be prepared for all the, the the million questions so that they understand every single aspect of every single dot that needs to connect for that sort of stuff. And it's kind of like grown since then because, again, like unconscious bias plays a role in how we we deal with people. Like it's it's I've become more and more I've studied unconscious bias, more I can look at people and kind of go where they've it's clear that they don't like someone. <laughs> and then they'll say something, you know, that feels like that's their unconscious bias kind of playing that role over there and in, into why actually they don't like them because really I don't understand why they don't like them. I can... I'm not saying they're not difficult, but actually I don't struggle with them because I've just understood how they've worked. Our core beliefs play a role, the language we use. I have a big issue where people don't, I say something and people think I've said something horrible <laughs> or I've been really direct and actually it's just my choice of words is is the worst um, when actually my, if I thought a bit more about what I said. But equally, people have said stuff to me and I've taken it really personally when actually it's nothing against me at all but it's just clearly how they've said it it's just felt like an attack on me you know our mental health plays a huge role I know last year I mentally wasn't in the best of places and actually that was very obvious people kind of made notes about my behavior when actually I knew and my bosses knew that obviously I just was really mentally struggling and obviously in the last year it's improved massively meaning I've now got a very different people have different opinions on me but I don't think they quite connect that that mental health journey for me is the big reason for that and and also learning as you know learning is a never evolving journey and I love learning I love learning new things I love the challenge of like if I don't know something I'm gonna go go off and and learn about it. I watch movies and then I'll discover it's based on a true story and then I'll spend three hours learning about, <laughs> about where that movie was based off and you know and again everyone learns differently they learn at their own speeds they they take you know you could sit there and say one way to one person on how to use a tool and I then you need to say it a completely different way to someone else for how they use that tool sort of thing. So that, you know, is another thing. And yeah, and then it's just bringing that all together to build out that bridge. And again, with people, like you have people who immediately are your believers. They're like totally bought into you. But I've had people who don't like change or they're afraid, you know, like when I was at uh, UC, I had, I went on leave and I told them they had to share stand-ups, came back, didn't share stand-ups, <laughs> told them off. Basically, I said, right, from now on, because I said, you're a team. I said, you should have worked together as a team. Like, why was it this person? And, you know, it was both sides were at fault for it. And I said, right, from now on, when I'm not at stand-up, one of you will have to run it and I'll have a rotor. But this person didn't quite understand that. He thought I was immediately making them do it every day. And he obviously went and whinged and complained to the other devs. And sure enough, the ones who were fully already believed in me and were, were bought in were like, oh, yeah, they're really upset. And I went, oh, no, that's not what it is. And, you know, I went and spoke to him and he was then all of a sudden fine with it because it was just when I wasn't there. But I then left it for six months or three, like three to six months. And then I 
suggested, oh, how about you just do it every day? And he was perfectly fine with it because he, he'd already started doing it. And he, just that one time every now and then, he's like, oh, yeah, we could do it. We're already doing it. Like, why can't we just not not do it sort of thing? So it's like, again, just understanding that people don't respond the way you want to on everything. And it's about bringing them on that journey. And I just think particularly with how things are today, like it's just that human element, I feel like sometimes gets a bit lost in what we're doing and trying to achieve. And I think sometimes we just need to go back to that human element because even developers, like you have developers in a team and some of them are like, they're all leading, you know, in some way, they're all influencing each other. They're all like putting in their opinions. They're all getting people on board, you know, and I think, you know, BAs do the same thing. Product owners do the same thing. Like we're all leading in some form of up, down, sideways, diagonally, just trying to, to make the change we want to make for, for the better. And so, yeah, so I've started, um, writing a lot about it now because I just think it's something I'm really passionate about and I've actually got my first conference in November oh very good so yeah I'm hoping to kind of go around and start talking with uh, more and more about that because I just think give people that kind of try and get that view and that perception of like just thinking about particularly with mental health like things that are just not visible unconscious bias you know you need to be able to address absolutely where can people find that and where when where how much uh, so it's at the uh, Women in Tech Silicon Roundabout. Tickets are on sale on their website. Wonderful. I think we should wrap it up there. So thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a fantastic discussion, and I hope we can see you at TED London uh, in a short few years. Oh, that that's definitely a, a goal. There we go. It's a TED Talk, yeah, for sure. Brilliant. Well, thanks for being on the show, Jill. Thank you so much. <laughs>